0: You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high-growth and high-values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We're in about 20 episodes now, and I've really enjoyed making it for you. We would love your feedback on the show. Please visit our website at startupsforgood.com and click on survey. It'll only take you about five minutes and we'd really appreciate it. It will help us make the show better. Thank you. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter. On today's episode, I speak with Nathan Schneider and Danny Spitzberg. Often we have startup founders or investors on this show, sometimes nonprofit founders. Today, we turn more philosophical. Nathan Schneider is an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, where he leads the Media Enterprise Design Lab. His most recent book is Everything for Everyone, the radical tradition that is shaping the next economy. Danny is a user researcher for the cooperative economy they work together on a project called Exit to Community, which was a report and a term they coined to promote the option of selling your company not to another company or to group of investors, and not to employees perhaps via an ESOP, but to users, to customers, or to a broader community around the company. They're also involved in Startup Co-op, which is an accelerator program for creating new cooperative businesses. On the show, we discussed examples of exit to community attempts, examples of successful co-ops, legal and other constraints to seeing more of both of these. We talk about the question of is scale and growth compatible with a co-op model? And what is the role of risk-taking in these models and in innovation generally? I think you'll enjoy this show, so stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. Nathan, Danny, thanks for coming on. Thank you, brass Yeah, really excited to talk about some topics that I think may be new to a lot of our audience and you can teach us. But why don't we start with each of you introducing yourselves. Uh, Danny, why don't you go ahead?
1: Yeah, thanks. And glad to be here. I'm Danny, and I do user research, which is probably something that a lot of folks will know as that sort of oddball source of direction. And uh, I also have been committed for a long time to shared ownership and worker control in the tech industry at large. And I'm based in California.
0: Nathan?
2: All right. I, I am Nathan Schneider, and I teach at the University of Colorado Boulder, where I've got a little group called the Media Enterprise Design Lab. And I've been worked as a journalist in the past and through that really got interested in how to build more democratic ownership and governance in the online economy. That's where my work has really revolved around for a good number of years is trying to figure out pathways just to make it easier for us to have more accountable and, and equitable technologies.
0: Great. I think the first thing we should start with is a recent project you guys collaborated on which was the exit to community report? How did that come about?
2: For me, you know, I'm curious about you know how Danny would tell the story, but but a big part of it really came out of a, an earlier collaboration that we did, uh, where starting in 2016 we were at this effort to quote-unquote, by Twitter, to encourage a mobilization among Twitter users to ask the company and even to demand of it to explore options for user ownership. This was the time when Twitter was considered an acquisition, a series of acquisition offers. And it, you know, it was kind of a stunt in some respects just to kind of get the idea out that companies don't just have to be owned by investors or by other companies. They can be owned by their participants. And at the time, it was kind of a crazy thing, and and it was treated that way. And media coverage about our campaign, we we ended up submitting a shareholder proposal, and you know, getting Danny went to the shareholder meeting at Twitter headquarters, and all this. And but just a couple of years later, now we're seeing uh, a lot of projects, including early startups, but also large establishment behemoths like Uber and Airbnb, trying to find ways to explore. User ownership in different in, in different forms to community is an attempt to to just build a narrative around that idea, around that the idea that maybe in a lot of cases the real you know the best for who should own a, a platform or a, a company is the people who depend uh, the, the the users rather than who it usually is, which is investors and and shareholders and uh, and and this sort of thing and and that narrative opens up all sorts of possibilities about the kinds of accountability we could build into our platforms, but it also presents a lot of challenges. How do we get there in a policy and, and business environment that's really not well for, uh, for this kind of community ownership? Uh, and we draw on a bunch of, you know, emerging models as well as historical models, Uh, that demonstrate that community ownership has been done before, has been powerful, and uh, something that we should really expect of our our online economy.
0: Are there recent salient examples of exit community that people would
1: know? Well, it depends how recent you want to go back. I think you probably mean the last, say, five to 20 years. And there are some thought experiments there I think my favorite one, though, which is still modern history, is one that Nathan dug up from when the Associated Press in around 1945 was, by the Supreme Court in the U.S., essentially turned from a small cabal of folks running a newswire to get cables from Europe to the U.S. The Supreme Court basically said, you're extorting our newsrooms across the country for information on what's happening in Europe and elsewhere, and that's not good. We're trying to win this war. So you now will be made into a cooperatively owned nonprofit. And that was that. I wouldn't call that as much as an exit strategy like you might even for a business, you know, even back in the 40s, but it still was a very wholesale shift for the structure of AP. I would say also parts of the strategy, thinking in modern times, are really the place my my mind goes right now. When you think about an exit and then to community, there's a lot in both of those words. The word community obviously is used probably 101 ways, and there's a lot of possible definitions there, but I've seen a lot of groups over the last few years that are building what could be key, I guess you call them like the building blocks, right? Some structural pieces of how they run the organization that would make it very realistic to see themselves as community-owned. And a lot of these, I'll, I'll sort of give a A bit of a push on some folks who assume that cooperatives are excellent a lot of the examples i've seen are coming from groups that are in no way even familiar with what a cooperative or shared ownership structure looks like where they for example in my own focus they are extremely responsive and reciprocal with their users their users are making proposals for how to drive the roadmap because they are invested in their users and they care about them and they have very meaningful dialogues but like what are the real examples the only one that comes to mind is a bit of a, a sort of a hop and a skip, which is a platform called Stocksy, which is a stock photo platform in Victoria, Canada, but you know, selling digital content like photo and video. And the founder came out of the industry, right? The digital media industry and turned, a dime, turned on a dime to create Stocksy for what it is, as a platform owned by its workers who run the thing and its contributors who create the video and photo. So it's not like a wholesale exit, but it was someone carrying an idea and a lot of experience from one place to the next. And Stocksy remains one of the only, let's call it like industry competitive examples of a cooperative platform out there that that goes to the industry conferences and shows up and gets that respect. Um, Nathan may have other examples of groups that have pushed through. I think there's Hacker News or Hacker Noon, excuse me, I forget which one. I'm more focused, I think on the, the building blocks because it takes a long time to get there. Yeah,
2: Hacker Noon is an interesting example. It, it's it was it's a news uh, for um, and kind of blog for tech workers, and it started out as many do on Medium, and then they ended up feeling like Medium was not a, you know viable place to build their business. There were too many restrictions, policies kept changing. They just weren't in control of their platform. And so what they needed to exit their form, and in order to do that, they had this capital and uh, to build their own. And they ended up raising uh, about a million dollars through an equity crowdfunding campaign. So it didn't become a traditional cooperative, but it did become something where the community of that of that platform became its owners. And you know, I Full disclosure and one of them. Uh, it's a you know family business here in Colorado that used leveraged its community to enable it to raise capital and to and to expand. But also it's important to, you know, Danny mentioned policy earlier in the role of the Supreme Court. Uh, since 1974, we've had a framework in place to enable companies to become employee owned through a structure called ESOP. This has enabled, you know, some really large companies to have significant employee ownership. There's a healthy tax structure, there's this whole process kind of codified into law that enables companies to become employee-owned. Here in Colorado, a famous example is New Belgium Brewing, you know, the maker of Fat Beer, which until very recently was fully employee-owned. There have been a pretty good number of community transitions in, in recent U.S. history through this employee ownership law, but that doesn't help. For instance, Airbnb exit to ownership by its hosts you know, which they've indicated they would like to do in one way or another. And so I think we need to explore what are the frameworks that we need to enable these companies to do what actually seems like a really good fit for them, recognizing that, you know, we've done it for certain kinds of businesses and certain kinds of transitions, but we haven't really updated that for the online economy.
0: So what are those policy changes that are needed?
2: I think what we really need to look toward is a, a broad framework for community ownership, uh, financing community ownership. So right now, if if you're you know a, a wealthy person who's an investor and you're you want to you know make a big play in, you know in some kind of fund uh, or some kind of company, you know you can access capital to, to make that investment. You, you're not necessarily just putting in your own money. You're you're uh, you know maybe borrowing money to make that investment. Groups of people with a reasonable idea can't do that right now, you know. So this is why, you know, we have huge parts of U.S. countryside that doesn't have broadband, you know, it because investors don't see value in investing in those places. And the people who live there who do see value investing, in investing in their communities can't because they can't access capital. Um, we've solved that problem before or the housing market has an insurance structure, you know, Fannie, Mae, Freddie Mac, these sorts of things that, that make it so that so that ordinary people with rural incomes can can get mortgages to, to buy a house. Um, we've done it on a large scale with electric cooperatives. We, we electrified the uh, rural America starting in the mid-30s through enabling this specific narrow kind of community finance. I think we need to enable a group of... Users on a platform who have a common business, you know, people, for instance, the founder of meetup.com, Scott Heiferman would love to see, you know, we've tried to work with him on these goals. He'd love to see Meetup turn into a cooperative of its community organizers, but those community organizers can't access capital. So we need a framework for that. Bare basic, you know, step in that direction is in 2018, Congress passed the Main Street Employee Act, which asks you know, requires the Small Business Administration to allow groups of employees to access small business loans just like entrepreneurs can. The SBA still hasn't implemented that law that President Trump signed, you know, is an example of the kinds of things that can happen that are relatively small bipartisan tweaks. You know, that bill passed with straight down the line bipartisan support that can really supercharge our communities to participate in the economy in right now ways that only rich people can.
0: So you're talking about not just the way the business gets sold to the community after being funded some other way. You're now transitioning to talk about how the business gets started in the first place.
2: Well, the acquisition, you know, the sale is often leveraged too. You know? So finance just runs throughout the whole, the whole story. And you know, so much of what we can and can't do is you know, inscribed into little obscure rules somewhere. And you know, what those rules amount to in our world today, today is, is a total ecosystem in which a very small number of people can play and, and groups of people, you know, should, they should be protected. Often these rules are designed to protect retail investors, but, you know, when groups of people come together to do very reasonable things, you know, we, we need a framework that enables them to access capital, just like, you know, laws were changed to enable venture capital to happen. You know, the finance landscape is crucial. The the case like uh, Meetup is so critical, you know, you have a founder who wants this to happen, you have a clear business model for how the community owns, you know, it just makes so much sense. The stopping, the you know, the bottleneck was the investors, just there wasn't a framework for how to, for how to facilitate that transaction. and And that's what that's a big part of what we need to change. It's very chicken, and you know, you know, we have a lot of people who want this system, this process to be possible. But in order to get the the policy change and 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 the ecosystem, the infrastructure, you know, we need some good examples, uh, and we've got partial examples out there. But you know, and this is really where Danny's been been leading, trying to help uh, some of these these startups that are real would really love this option to help help them become pioneers and. Uh, create pathways that I can follow in.
0: Can you be more specific about this meetup example? I'm really curious, was it hung up because of accredited investor rules, or what particular hang up was there? There wasn't financing to borrow before you could raise the money from users or exactly what were the mechanics? I'd love you to peel back the onion if you don't mind.
2: Yeah, sure. It's it's really the latter. I mean, investors you know, in the current market know how to buy things that they can then treat as a speculative asset or, uh, you know, they know how to buy companies and then turn them around and then sell them to more investors. Um, What they don't necessarily know how to do just because they got in the practice selling them, you know, to buy, to, to leverage a deal that end up turning the thing over to, you know, its close participants. In that employee ownership world that I was talking about, the ESOP, you know, that happens all the time uh, where, you know, large commercial banks will, will lend through this tax advantage process to um, enable uh, work to become workers without putting in a dime of their own money, um, which is really important for people who don't have wealth and savings. Um, and they, they earn it back through the future success of the company. You know, it's something that is doable. It's something to do with employee ownership where you leverage that transition, but there just aren't enough models to, you know, to, or examples to point to. There isn't a, you know, a, a product in place right now that could turn to, to say, okay, here's the financial product we want you to, you know, to, to invest in, here's how it works. Um, that, that's the kind of thing we need to develop. And that some of the people in the place are, are working to do, recognizing that this is a real missed opportunity.
0: Is some of this happening in the blockchain?
2: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, in some ways, actually, the some of the earliest uh, uptake from on the exit to community idea came from uh, the blockchain community. For instance, uh, uh, Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum, has been using this language to talk about, you know, his desire to kind of see the community uh, take fuller ownership over the over the protocol he he's he's developed. And also seeing tools coming out like Fairman and uh, another called Roll. Uh, they're using kind of blockchain technology uh, in finance to enable these kinds of things to happen. Both of those companies, Roll and Fairman, have explicitly identified with the exit to community, idea, and they use kind of uh, different strategies to make it easier for people to become kind of co-owners in a company or a brand that they, that they identify with. Um, You know, there are some issues there around regulatory stuff around, you know, usability that always comes up with blockchain. But, you know, I think one of the real exciting opportunities is to kind of meld together the new technologies with like the old legal structures of cooperatives and trusts to, uh, brings those, those new technology above ground and to make the work, to make them less transactional and more about you know building a responsible democratic community. Uh, so there's you know th- there's something really to be learned between these traditions and uh, and these new technologies.
1: I think what what blockchain also does for provoking us, for better and for worse, is it has a very developed imagination that a lot of folks even in tech, find a bit illegible. And that's you know not a judgment. It's just to say that there's a lot of deep work and a lot of thought and vision there, specifically around governance. The irony is that we've been talking a lot about ownership, which is important and often is a sort of higher order function. You know, who owns the thing can do a lot. And what is so, I suppose, a bit of There's a bit of a some some work to make up on, I suppose, in the in the blockchain world is a lot of governing structures are pretty primitive from what I've seen, like voting, you know, up and down voting, or you know, small ways to comment on proposals and tweak parameters, for example, with different protocols. But in cooperatives, in real life, and you know, for many years before the internet, even there's so many very nuanced and sophisticated but elegant ways of governing that include people's voice. So what Nathan's mentioning about the beyond the transactional piece, I think what you see with Airbnb, for example, offering a little equity is a small way of taking their extreme brand value. People love or did really identify with Airbnb as the best thing that they could have as part of their you know income subsidy, if you will, depending and now offering a bit of a transactional or some sort of token way of solidifying that. And I would, I would caution us to go the other way and say, well, if we can just offer lots of users a little bit of equity, then we'll just be able to say the same or make the same claims rather as all these other excellent examples from history. And I would say that's missing the, the other piece, right? Ownership and governance is sort of, I don't like to say one-two punch, but you know, it's a, it's a dynamic duo, right? And there are so many ways that have, I've seen, again, groups that don't even know what a cooperative is or have no concept of shared ownership or shared power are doing really excellent work to reciprocate and do more than build, you know, transactional ways of interacting with their users, but build relationships with them and then develop proposals and then shift the balance of power, have working groups, having committees, having all sorts of special funds or, you know, allocating money for groups to actually go and do stuff themselves, which is what we're talking about at the end of the day here is that the community gets to do what it wants to do for itself after it's had a little bit of self-awareness, some introspection and maybe some encouragement. So blockchain, like I said, can kind of provoke us to balance our, uh, our view here with some of the governing uh, mechanisms that are really quite robust, but maybe don't have the uh, vocabulary or the legibility that we would need for, for really utilizing them.
0: Don't just listen, get engaged. You've heard me talking about the Startups for Good Giving Circle, and maybe you're wondering, how does it work? Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. You'll be able to sign up as a member and choose to make a reoccurring donation. Let's say $20 a month or whatever you can afford. We will focus on newer or startup tech nonprofits to provide the initial angel funding to get them off the ground. We will vote on a nonprofit recipient of our grant approximately quarterly. All donations are US tax deductible. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. Can you share a little bit more about Airbnb's desire to share equity with hosts? I know one of the ride sharing companies also was interested in sharing equity with their drivers. Um, where have those proposals gone? Where do they get hung up? And has SEC encouraged this recently? Uh, yes and no.
2: So, so, you know, in 2017, we did our Twitter shareholder meeting. In 2018, you know, just a year later, Airbnb and Uber uh, both write letters to the SEC, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, saying we want to share equity with our, our users can you help us do that? Currently, you know, you can do equity compensation with employees, you can do some sharing with with contractors and, and advisors, but it's really not meant for, you know, like a the scale of millions of users, which is what these folks are dealing with. And so um, wanted to have a framework, and especially the Airbnb is pretty, pretty darn eloquent, you know, in identifying the both social and, and business value of aligning these incentives and Bringing the the user base in as you know as the as core stakeholders, the SEC ultimately kind of didn't act at that age. Um, they've recently expanded some some worker compensation uh, opportunities. So you know we'll see where that goes. But it seems like there's some uh, possibility of movement there. You know I should put my cards on the table. I don't really trust these companies to provide utopian um, template here, uh, I, I point to them to demonstrate that there is a um, and that there is an opportunity for a kind of race to the top where we really incentivize companies to do more uh, of this kind of 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 this kind of community owner. What Uber ended up having to do a kind of workaround before their IPO, where they basically like gave Uber's money and invited them to buy shares. Airbnb did something sort of similar. They've now set up a an interesting structure within the company that allows proceeds from equity to go to, to uh, certain hosts, as well as a kind of host elected governance system, ultimately, or not, it's just like oversight advisory system. They ended up kind of building a kind of phantom equity within the company itself, but it's just a demonstration of how what they actually want to do in terms of real equity uh, had to be back and how the companies really do see value in, in, in trying to, uh, in trying to integrate this. So, you know, looking at the Airbnb proposal, which includes, again, both governance oversight, you know, around policies and, and possibilities for distributions of equity is, you know, it's just a sign that, you know, this could be something that we expect of our platforms that you know we should expect that if someone's going to be using our personal data, we have some voice oversight. If somebody's going to be making money, you know, off of value we're creating that, you know, we should share in that in that benefit.
0: So you're making the case there of why it's positive for the community to share in governance and ownership. Can you make the case for the founder or the existing owners? to want to exit to community?
2: Yeah. So we, we hear this from, you know, from founders who are you know attracted to this idea. I also hear it from founders who, you know, who've sold, who've had traditional exit and feel really frustrated by what happened. One example that I've published about is uh, the founder of Ancestry.com, you know, which is you know such an important resource that many families, including mine, use to figure out their, you know, where they came from. And the, you know, the founder built it as a you know, company he wanted to make money on, but also something he really believed in and felt like the private equity funds that have passed it around have really done some injustice to the the people who who really rely on the platform. And and so, you know, founders like that, they they want to create something awesome in the world. And uh, they feel like the existing op- exit options really restrict their ability to, to see their platform through to the the fullest possibilities and force them to prioritize things like you know extracting value from their users that uh, they think are either they're uncomfortable with personally, but also that just don't make good business sense in the long term. And then finally, we're seeing a few things that come up Airbnb and Uber cases, which one is loyalty. You know, these are platforms that people can drop and move to another platform, you know, whenever a better option becomes available. And, and so so retaining these users, you know, equity could go a long way and and help will want to stick around with a particular platform, even if a shinier option shows up. And then second is kind of off outsourcing the site a little bit. You see this with Facebook, where Everything that happens on Facebook is suddenly Mark Zuckerberg's responsibility. And his answer to that was to create this oversight board that now is like exploring the question of whether they should have kicked off Donald Trump. You know, it's a a signal of how these founders have kind of taken on more than they than they feel like they should be responsible for. And they want to pass back some of that responsibility to their communities, which I think, you know, is good in the long run for the communities too. You know, it, it helps them kind of distribute the responsibility and the accountability in a way that can help them focus on what they do best and, you know, get get out of some of the, the questions that are in some sense kind of unanswerable to anybody and that no one person should have you know, ultimate authority on, you know, anyway. So it's, you know, I think that Facebook Oversight board is a a yet another signal that even large, super powerful companies see value in some targeted opportunities for for distributing power. I think we need to push them to to really expand that, become much less cautious about what that
0: accountability can look like. Now, we've been talking mainly about exit to community. I'd like to hear some about your other project, Start Co-op.
1: You know, I was going to bring up the Start.coop program, which is a, an accelerator for scalable shared owner enterprise, shared ownership enterprises. When we were talking a little bit earlier about some of the ways to think about whether or not ownership and some of the skepticism, because I think that skepticism is the sort of next reaction or impulse some folks have after they get turned on to an idea. It's like, okay, wait, 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 this is exciting, but, you know, I, I'm a risk minded person, whether I'm risk averse or risk tolerant, and I just want to make sure I'm not missing some things. And so as I, you know, I've been I've been an advisor with Start.coop for a couple of years, and Nathan as well, and there's a lovely group of folks constantly trying to get on with this group to help it become more accountable to the groups that need it most. And so what that has included along the way is a f- way, let's call it some... Simplifying the language, or maybe making it more universal and less eclectic or esoteric. So, when you hear the word cooperative, that does a thing to you. You say, Oh, that's exciting, but can cooperatives scale? Or, ah, but that sounds good for a small number of workers or in a certain sector where there's no market, but we're talking about, come on here, we're talking about ride hail, or we're talking about whatever other massively accessible market there is. And I think what's important to highlight is for the promise and the vision of Start.coop, which is just to give a a little bit of detail first, it's been a couple of years with two cohorts of a half dozen or so teams that have graduated. And these teams are starting up some tech enabled shared shared ownership enterprise that has a potential to scale and can be transformative in its industry. So staffing or healthcare, or in actually, if you can believe it, even like uh, accessory dwelling units for using an access part of your property for another unit. And to the skepticism that comes up often just to kind of hit this head on, uh, I think I reasoned this out the other day with with Greg, who's the the founder of this, this program, that the question of scalable is so important to tie back to the financing bit we talked about earlier, because it's not as though a cooperative can or cannot scale or something with shared ownership and with distributed leadership and accountability structures that maybe even tie to the communities, like the literal neighborhoods, for example, that a company serves, can they compete? Can these enterprises compete enough in the markets that they choose to try and enter fast enough to get to where they would like to be to have a competitive advantage? You know that they can protect or that they can defend, and that changes the conversation quite a lot. Because can you compete? Well, it's can you hire enough folks fast enough? Can you hire Good enough folks can you hire and get partnerships with some key folks who would enable you to enter into markets or can you get a lobbying arm like we've seen a lot of these companies i did an interview last week with one of the earliest cooperative platform examples that everyone was super excited about which was for freelancers and for seven years the person trying to get this thing started did incredible acrobatics to try and find partnerships with a community college system throughout the state of california all the way back to earlier days trying to find specific small niche markets like dog walkers or whatever other you know let's call them uh, in perpetuity freelancers and it was actually constantly a struggle to find the money to compete it wasn't whether or not he could scale it wasn't even if he could find a niche it was that you really are looking against uh, you're up against folks who have their their logos on bus stops all over a city within a week right after they launch so I know it may sound simplistic to just put it back on the money, but I think that is a way of reasoning out how this program start.coop can help think through how we might scale up some of these shared ownership projects that are both you know shared owned and governed. And so that's a long way of introducing the program, but I think it's, it's important to introduce it. As Nathan said, there's a whole ecosystem and a whole cultural uh, sea we swim in that we don't uh, acknowledge or we haven't really picked apart. To make sense of critically and to think about these alternatives. So this program is a bit of a a wedge that we can drive through to expose some of that and make progress. Can you explain your vision for
0: how these kinds of tech-enabled co-ops can or should raise capital?
1: Raising capital is not my forte, but I will say that in part of the value proposition for a company to go up and try to engage with investors wherever they may be, whether they're small, medium, or large, you know, individual, unaccredited, accredited, or institutional, or very well-endowed angel, or what have you. I think that my favorite building block that I'll add in is my own work. Right now, I'm I'm leading research with a group called Turning Basin Labs, and we've found ways to basically train up the users to conduct their own user research. So in a way, that's jumping or leaping ahead to figuring out what would this company, what would this enterprise do for the people that it's serving and have the efficiency gain, if you will, of those folks saying it, implementing it, you know, working on a production line. As part of a pitch, that's one of 101 components or building blocks, not to use that word too much, that I think helps maybe on the one hand seem interesting and novel, and on the other hand, show a repeatable, reliable mechanism for generating value. So, Again, on the other side of the table, that's not where I've been really spending much of my time, but uh, I think maybe perhaps there's a way of codifying and making a simple typology of what it looks like to make a reasonable pitch and to have a, the terms for a deal secured. One example that I do want to highlight here that was, uh, I think it's a rare one and it deserves some uh, some quick attention is Savvy, which is uh, similar to what I just mentioned in a way. It's, it's a cooperative of patients or folks who have certain health and medical conditions that they're very familiar with, contributing that wisdom as part of studies. And I'm not exactly sure where the, where the savvy is at in terms of its offering, but they basically partner with research groups of different kinds to run these studies with these folks who know their stuff well and can speak on it and can also add a whole other layer of input to how the studies should be run and so on. They did a deal with Indie.vc or Indie.vc about a year ago now, maybe eight months. I don't know. Time is time is hard right now. And the short version or the sort of highlight of that deal, to my understanding, and there was a webinar that Nathan and I and uh, Astrid Schultz from Zebras United hosted with, uh, with Jen and Jason Weiner. The highlight was this, Bryce from NDVC, who's the, the sort of, you know, person out in front trusted Jen Horenjeff from Savvy, from a number of years of conversations, from seeing the operations of Savvy come up, such that he did not require a board seat. Because again, he trusted the operations, he knew that it was consistent, and it was going to be what he expected over the long term or the medium term, such that, again, that was for the cooperative on Jen's side of the table, tenable, right? That they could have outside investors without threatening the internal democracy of the co-op, and like Nathan said, with all the little minutiae of all the rules, they were all taken care of and they were all respected. So it's a rare example and a really important highlight that you can trust someone, and it can be also, you know, to a degree contractually structured to make that kind of investment deal. And I think Savvy is doing quite well in the in, in, the, in the pack of uh, other folks who have graduated out of Start.
0: I think the question for me would be whether co-ops are compatible with scaling quickly. So fast growth that is indicative of the tech-enabled tech startup that you're used to? And can that be changed or is that a benefit? In other words, are you proposing people consider co-ops so that they grow in a slower, what you might argue, more healthy manner and take less risk? Or are you saying they can grow quickly as a co-op and there's a way to do it?
2: Yeah, they they absolutely can. and. It, but it does require a different approach. You know, the your capital model, which doesn't really work for co-ops because co-ops retain value in their communities, involves throwing a huge amounts of money at a bunch of bets and seeing what works and basically reaping all rewards from the from the few that succeed. In it, cooperatives, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't work this kind of model. And that's okay. There are other ways to do scale and, and innovation. For instance, you know, a, a case here in Colorado uh, that I'm working on a study on right now actually uh, uses, uh, it was a, a worker co-op called Namaste Solar that tried to grow nationally, but then decided this was not really, didn't make sense. They have stuck being a reason, regional business, but what they did to grow to scale was they built a cooperative called Amicus Solar that is joint purchasing among small businesses across the country. This kind of model that that on, leverages existing flows in in an in an sector um, is one that cooperatives have been able to scale very very quickly. You know, we see purchasing cooperatives that you know, including businesses like Best Western Hotels, the purchasing cooperative Ace Hardware. You know, my my grandfather ran for a little while a, a multi-billion dollar hardware purchasing co-op. These kinds of things that, that leverage and redirect existing flows have grown very, very quickly in, in the past. And I think we can you know, modernize that model, uh, adapt it, and, and redirect it. I mean, even Visa, the credit card network, was really built on that model as a agglomeration of banks. And and so it, it just requires thinking differently, you know, not different like Apple differently, which is grammatically correct. And you instead, rather than trying to disrupt industries, you attempt to leverage existing flows within and transform industries by through co-ownership, redirecting those so so rather than thinking about replacing all of the small newspapers in the country instead try to hurt all those small newspapers you know it's seen it's in a way kind of what we see with shopify as opposed to amazon you know creating a model that is about empowering uh smaller businesses smaller existing entities out there rather than uh, wiping them off the off the map and so it requires to think about what could technology enable us to do that's different from what the venture capital financing model has compelled and encouraged uh, technologists to do. It's not the technology that forces the destruction of whole sector of the economy. It's the business model. And cooperatives prevent, present an alternative way for us to think about how, how we grow our technology. It requires some, you know, appropriate finance, but this can be done at scale. You know, down the road from me, there's a $130 billion cooperative bank called CoBank, you know, a really powerful financial institution that's is itself a cooperative is designed to finance cooperatives it it operates in agriculture which is a you know strongly cooperativized sector but you know we should have a a co-bank for tech Uh, we don't have that right now but that's that's what a bunch of us are you know are trying to build the build the support structure to to create to make it so that this stuff is not you know is not crazy it's just you know it's just it's just a normal option out there to become community-owned
0: One of the things I'm wondering is the extent to which innovation is necessarily tied with taking risk and our co-op's position to take risk. The examples you used of purchasing co-op, even a visa, which was innovative, are about sort of taking less risk and, as you said, going with existing flows in the economy. So I don't know if you have an answer, but it's something I certainly ponder and will continue to ponder.
2: Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why this exit to community idea is, is really important is that, you know, co-ops do have risk problem times. If, you, if you're if you starting a business at the very beginning that is operative, you know, you've got a bunch of people who are members who, you know, might be anxious at taking risks. And I think we want to hit, you know, the, the best of both worlds. The Cool thing that the startup culture is good at is you know being nimble and being a pivot and uh, enabling really creative exploration to figure out what the you know where the market fit is where the who the community really is and sometimes it takes some time to figure that out Um, but then once a company does you know you know Facebook can't move and break things anymore it's gotta it's gotta move slowly build reliable infrastructure or whatever and and I think we need the ability to to pivot from one to the other, to pivot from uh, startup mode, to when something becomes a community asset that communities are relying on, enable us to transition it over to community ownership.
1: One of the most amazing and, again, very provocative things I've seen in the last uh, about 10 years is I've noticed a lot of tech companies of all kinds but especially the larger ones, include, but in, and in a, few, a few, let's say, even 10 or fewer employees are hiring community and labor organizers or folks who have that background. Partly, and this is something I'm looking at, you know, like these are people I talk to directly. This isn't like reading in the news. It's like, I've seen some of these folks say, you know what, I just need to make some more money. I want to get at home for my family. But I think the trend there or, and the talent acquisition, if you will, that's really to be taken seriously is... These are folks who have training as community and labor organizers in acknowledging big threats and serious risks, thinking about how folks will get comfortable with their risk tolerance and get articulate about it, be able to speak on it openly with each other, vulnerably, with some courage, and then take that risk collectively, which is Interesting to see that tech companies are hiring for these folks because most of it is, you know, having someone on staff who can organize, you know, literally, I'm not kidding, like pizza parties with neighbors to help them get comfortable with the idea of scooters, right, that may be now flooding their sidewalks. So that's smart on a tactical level. But I think to to your question, Miles, about where risk factors into this this calculus, collective risk and who or whom, (laughs) I never know which one, is taking that risk together is the important way I would uh, suggest to frame the question, which is again, why exit community and community ownership is at least on the first blush, a really obvious solution to the problem of getting folks involved and to have some skin in the game. Now, you know, it gets much more complicated as soon as you start asking, well, how do you pay back some of the folks who've earned or who ought to earn a lot of sweat equity from groups that from starting something that was not venture backed so it was all just their social capital and their blood sweat and tears and conversely how do you pay off or buy out investors who are expecting just you know just like any other deal a s- substantial or a reasonable amount of return for their investment And so how can you organize folks collectively? You see a lot of activity, like I said, in groups hiring community and labor organizers. I think that is a huge uh, shortcoming amongst these shared ownership enterprises where there's not enough of a organizing component. You know, there's not enough of a earnest, humble approach saying, who are all the folks here who have a stake at this? You know, sure. Like you were saying, can we speed it up a bit to engage with them fast enough? And then to have the conversation be about not just are they going to use our, Tool or app or service or what have you, but are they also willing to follow through on that and do more with it and then share some of the risk, whether it's you know the the the, the benefits or the the you know the losses, which I think is an important thing too. A lot of cooperatives in the financial crash of '08 actually made it through pretty well. There's a robotics cooperative where I was at grad school in Wisconsin that did even better than all of its peers. They're sort of a manufacturing engineering group making robots that make robots and they came out pretty well because they all took the risks together and they all took a pay cut together that resilience is uh is nothing to you know just mention lightly or and not something to romanticize either but risk has a sort of shape and has some contours that really helps uh grapple with it a lot easier when you lay it out like that thank you for that
0: do you have any advice for inspiring entrepreneurs i think it's so
2: important to find each other right now this stuff, you know, we're figuring it out as we go along. And we've been uh, working particularly through the Zebras Unite network, which is a, an awesome women-led uh, network of, of founders that are, you know, interested in different ways of, of challenging some of the existing norms, startup ecosystem. And that's a, a great way to start getting involved. We On the Zebras Unite online network, we have a, um, you know, a special kind of exit to community space. But one way or another, you know, you can also reach out to us and can help you connect with some relevant other founders who are exploring these ideas. And we just need to be learning from each other and, and uh, help, helping to create pathways that, that others can follow in the future.
0: And where can people follow up online?
1: Well, one good place to see a lot of this small but I hope representative community effort is e 2 c so letter E, number two, letter C, exit to communityhow H-O-W, where that's the program Nathan and myself, and Mara Zapeta, and Shiza Shah, and some other folks from the Zebra United group ran this program last fall. It was you know, a group of participants, a group of mentors, a group of facilitators, and hopefully enough folks around the wings who can bring some more resources. So that's a good place to go and visit and to check some bios out, get some inspiration there. Wonderful. Thank you both for being on.
2: Thanks so much for, for us, uh, for having us and for being interested in these, these
0: thorny questions.
1: Thanks a lot, Miles. Glad to be here with y'all.
0: If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player, and please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, dot com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.